Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. You have discovered the 270th episode of the podcast, which means that we are talking about what you are talking about, specifically what you are talking about, talking to me. Because every 10 episodes, I interact with at least three pieces of listener and reader feedback. And I have three very good, relatively diverse pieces of feedback to interact with today. One has to do with fly rods, one has to do with wading boots, and one has to do with climate change. So it's not a topic I usually talk about, but the email was so good, I thought I would include it this time around. But I also wanted to mention that uh, there's an extra special thing at the end of this podcast. I mean, it's not a huge deal, but it really does uh, talk about what's happening in the next few months here on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. I usually don't anticipate uh, or personally or advertise uh, publicly what's going to be coming on the podcast, but uh, I'm I'm taking a nine-week hiatus from spontaneity, and I have a a nine-week session uh, of of podcasts that is coming out, and so I want to talk about that here after I get to these pieces of feedback. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or accusations, you can send them my way, matthew at castingacross.com. Would love to hear from you. So here's the first one. Uh, it says, Dear Matthew, thanks again for your podcast and articles. I listened to your most recent podcasts on the way to church this morning and appreciate your debunking all three fly fishing lies. I too have struggled to catch bluegill and much to my shame. Uh, and here's the, the meat of this question. I hope that you can advise me on the purchase of a new rod. I currently have a Reddington Trout Plastic 3 weight and an older Clearwater 8.5 foot 5 weight. I'm happy with both rods, but I would like to either upgrade my 5 weight or to purchase a 7 or 6 weight rod. I'm a novice fly fisherman who fishes pretty exclusively in the Richmond, Virginia area and points west. I like to fish more often for large or smallmouth since this would get me out in the water more often. Where do you think my money would be better spent? On upgrading 5 weight, buying a new 6 weight, or a 7 weight? The latter, which makes more sense, a 6 weight or a 7 weight. Thanks for all you do and God bless. Jeff. 
And then Jeff asked actually for a book recommendation on uh, on uh, Reformed theology. And I'll just tell you with that, I, I recommend that he read um, What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul. And so that was that was the second piece of that uh, that email. But getting back to the bulk of Jeff's question, it, and it's a, it's a great question and one that I'm, I'm really hoping to uh, better uh, prepare prepare people for it through the website by doing this flyer out FAQ page that I'm putting together. But just to answer this question directly, so he has a three-weight, he has a five-weight, and he wants to incorporate fishing for smallmouth and largemouth bass. So he asks you to jump up to a six or a seven. Now, there's a few things that that I think about when I, when I answer this question. One, what do you already have? And, and two, what are you going to be doing? So something I've say frequently, and uh, and something that I, I think is should be well received is that um, you're not going to feel like you have too much fly rod if you jump up one or even two line weights. So that is to say that if you are uh, fishing on a small creek, uh, a seven weight is not going to feel like a broomstick when you're catching, you know, modest size smallmouth and largemouth bass, 12, 14, 16 inches. I mean, those are modest sized fish. Um, but the issue is not so much the size of the fish you're catching, it's the size of the fly that you are throwing. And when it comes to warm water fish, whether they be largemouth, smallmouth, or certainly larger species than that, having the kind of backbone that you can get with a seven weight is going to give you more opportunities than you can get with a six weight. It's going to allow you to flip that little cup face popper over. It's going to allow you to throw that conehead woolly bugger over a lot better with a lot less effort. So what this also does is give you a nice, you know, spread out arsenal to use the three, the five, and the seven. Um, is the seven going to be overkill for most trout fishing? Yes. But at the same time, I'm thinking of rivers around where Jeff is fishing that I've fished before where I have used a stiff five weight. And I've thought, you know, I need a little bit more oomph to throw some of these streamers or some of these weighted heads for fishing on some of these rivers for trout when the water is high or when the fish are down low. And a seven weight would not be overkill for that. Now, it would be overkill for fishing that tiny little dry fly, for fishing a complicated nymph rig, but it's not going to be overkill in that regard. Now, if he was just starting out and he said, I want a rod where I can fish for smallmouth and I can fish for trout, um, I would say, well, you're going to be missing out on some of the, the um, benefits of having a smaller rod on fishing the small streams in the area, but a six weight rod is not going to be ridiculous. But the fact that he has a three and a five, uh, getting that seven would be a good next step. And again, um, you're, you're going to be able to cast better and you're still going to be able to feel those fish. I remember I was such a holdout in fishing a six weight almost exclusively for smallmouth and uh, then realizing that I'm not getting into as big of fish as I could be getting into because my fly size was limited. Now, every once in a while, I'd catch a really big fish on a small streamer or on a small topwater fly. But I was missing out on some of the really big fish that I started getting into when I jumped up to the eight weight and I started fishing much larger streamers and much larger poppers and, uh, and other flies because uh, it was just attracting their attention and it was a much more uh, exciting meal for them to pursue. So I don't feel like I am losing out on anything. And again, I've, I've talked about this before too, where, uh, you know, I still catch big river bluegill on an eight weight rod when I'm fishing for smallmouth in Virginia, like Jeff's talking about, and they're still fun. I don't feel like I'm losing anything uh, when I'm, I'm fishing in that way. So that was my suggestion to Jeff. And hopefully if you are in a similar situation, uh, then you can, you can, this can be helpful to you. Uh, we, we can't always plan out which rods we have, but to have, you know, uh, 
four, a six, and eight, a three, a five, a seven. That's a great way, especially as you're building out your, your fly rod um, closet. Uh, you, you might not have the financial or even the uh, physical space uh, to, to have a whole closet full of fly rods. Um, and so there is wisdom in making good choices. But of course, we're just talking about um, you know, rod weights. We're not talking about lengths. We're not talking about actions. So a lot of this is in generalities. You may be very well served with two five weights, a very short, very soft five weight and a very long, very stiff five weight. I mean, both of those are going to accomplish different things. But uh, again, speaking in general terms, that would be a great way to go. So thank you, Jeff, for that email. I do greatly appreciate it. So the next email that I wanted to touch on came in regarding a video that uh, was was on the um, the 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 on the YouTube's as they say. So uh, Alex uh, says this. He said, "Hi Matthew. Uh, first, let me wish you a somewhat belated happy holiday and new year." Now, I just ran across your wading boot video and was wondering if you still like the boots, shoes you mentioned there, or if you have a new favorite. By the way, I'm looking for a walking boot that is neither too heavy nor too light and that is durable. I think he means wading boot, but best wishes, Alex. Well, Alex, uh, great question. So this was a video I put up a few years ago, and it's probably the most popular video I have on YouTube, which isn't saying a lot considering I don't put a lot up there. But I compared and contrasted three shoes that I use. Now, uh, one of these shoes I don't use anymore. It is the Astral Brewer. I've upgraded to a more aggressive uh, kayaking shoe by Astral, and I've got plenty of articles about uh, about that on the uh, the website. The next one is Reddington's Benchmark Boot, which is their entry-level wading boot. And then the third one was the Corker's Dark Horse, which is a pretty uh, rough and tumble, uh, hardcore wading boot, a pretty pretty pricey one for that matter. So I talked about why all three of these are worth owning, but how if you're going to pick one or two, why you might go in the direction that, that you go in. So similar to the conversation about fly rod I had regarding um, Jeff's question earlier, you know, maybe you don't have the resources or the space to have three pairs of wading boots. Um, maybe you, you do, uh, but this is, this is a way to think about which one is, is best suited for you. So Alex was looking for a wading boot that is neither too heavy nor too light, and that is durable. So this is where I would steer you towards that middle of the road wading boot. So in this particular video, it was the Reddington benchmark boot, but what you're getting in that boot is something that you're going to find in most major manufacturers entry level or their second tier wading boot which is quality construction, lightweight, and all the features that you need, but is also going to allow you to move relatively quickly. So uh, th this boot is the boot that I use probably um, four out of five times when I go fishing, uh, because a lot of my fishing is just for a few hours here, a few hours there, or I'm going to be moving quite a bit. If I'm going to be out on the river all day, I go with a really heavy-duty thing. If I'm going to be moving very, very speedily in the, in the water and I'm going to be hiking a lot, I'll go to the shoe. But this is a nice all-around boot. So the good thing about this, is, one, it's lightweight. Um, two, because it's lightweight, it's built to be flexible, give you the support you need uh, without being too much like a ski boot. Uh, thirdly, the price point is going to put you at a situation where even if you only get a handful of years out of it, you're not going to feel like you've been gypped because maybe one of the components is falling apart. Uh, that being said, that particular boot, the Reddington Benchmark boot, has lasted me a number of years. Um, I, I have um, a number of pairs of, of Orvis boots I've worn over the years. There's one particular pair that I absolutely love, but I fished them to death and I would only get maybe like four seasons out of them, but I was fishing them. I mean, to the, to the point where I didn't feel bad about getting a replacement pair because I was just beating them to death. It was, they were my exclusive boot and they were kind of a second tier ultra light wading boot. 
But because of that, the cost didn't seem prohibitive uh, to, to, to replace them because I was using them really, really hard. I mean, I, I get a new pair of running shoes every, I don't know, six, seven months. So I can't complain when a pair of wading boots that is really going through a lot more of a rigorous uh, exercise every time I, I take it out for the season has to be replaced after three or four years. I know a lot of people go through them quickly, but that's one of the benefits also of having multiple pairs that you're using in a more appropriate way. So um, that that's my, my response to to Alex when it comes to a, a boot like that uh, is trying to find something that's not the entry-level boot, but maybe one tier up that still touts itself as a lightweight boot. That's going to give you the support that you need to move to the stream and the support you need underfoot when you're in the water. Now, interestingly enough, Alex responded to my email saying, uh, thanks for the prompt response. I do, I do what I can. Uh, can I ask you one more question? When wading streams with typical bottoms, do you use the benchmark boots as they come or do you add cleats or felt? Great question, Alex, because these boots come with just a sticky rubber sole. Um, and when I, when he says typical bottoms, I assume he means just kind of a, a normal stream bottom, like what you would expect to see on a general stream. So uh, some some uh, smooth surfaces and some bigger rocky surfaces, uh, things that would require you to think about uh, the, the having better traction. So I have not cleated up my benchmark boots. Um, again, when I... Um, want something with a little bit more oomph, I will go to my uh, my Corker's boots and I'll throw on some aggressive soles. With those boots, I've got some really spiky, gnarly things that you could use on the jetties out in the surf or just kind of more subtle um, studs that I can use when I'm fishing on a um, like a shale bottom creek uh, in Pennsylvania or something like that. But for these particular boots, I allow them to just be the sticky rubber. Now, uh, some of that has to do with the fact that I'm walking a lot in them. And uh, I, I think studs would probably be a greater hindrance over these long distances than they would be a help when I'm in the water. So that's part of it. Um, I don't think I would, uh, if, if I strategically placed three or four on uh, places in my foot, that I would really have a problem with it. I just, I haven't gotten to that point yet. But I definitely do that. I don't add felt. Um, I have nothing no, nothing against felt. Um, I think felt, if used appropriately, is a perfectly fine uh, surface to use on the bottom of your boots. Um, there are plenty of ways that you can move bad stuff from one stream to another. Felt has become kind of the scapegoat, but as long as you're fishing in, in the same place or you're taking care of your gear, which is extends way beyond just the, the bottoms of your boots, then uh, felt is not a problem. But I haven't added anything to those boots. I like the flexibility of a plain rubber sole boot for that purpose uh, of that, that that shoe in my in my closet. So hopefully that was helpful, Alex, and hopefully that was helpful for all of you as well. I love these questions where it's like, I have these two things, I want one more thing, or I have this one thing, I want to get a next thing. Uh, because what, what it illustrates is that people aren't just like going out and buying stuff. I mean, there's plenty you can buy, but I, I like how people are deliberate in adding things to their, their um, again, their, I keep saying arsenal because I, I like that idea because these really are your toolbox. How about that? Um, you're thinking through what is going to serve me best. Not just going out and saying, I'm going to buy a fly rod or I'm going to buy a pair of boots. I'm going to buy a new reel, whatever. Finding the thing that's going to fit that niche so that you're not, that the Venn diagram of how your two pieces of gear don't overlap too much. They're, they're always going to have a little bit of overlap, um, but uh, as long as it's not like a two weight and a 12 weight, but uh, finding ways that these things are going to really allow you to have the greatest diversity of um, competency when you go out and, and get outdoors. So two questions about gear. Third question, as promised. Um, 
the uh, the question about climate change. So uh, here here's the email. It says Matthew recently discovered your podcast. I've listened to more than twenty episodes. You're thoughtful, organized, and well spoken on the information you share about fly fishing and other topics. I'm amazed that you have the time to do a podcast show with your work and family responsibilities. You recently mentioned that you have moved too. All those things are, are correct. Thank you. Um, I am writing you so that you'll consider doing a program on the topic of climate change and how the fly fishing community should help and how all of us can help. Lived over 70 years in central Texas. The summers are becoming unbearable. In 2011, we had a summer from hell. We had over 90 degrees, over 100 degrees, and horrific wildfires. They should be in the high 90s. The, that time of year. 23, we had 78 days where the temperature was over 100 degrees. Many days were 105 to 108. Spent many summers doing construction work. Don't know how many people do it now. We're still dealing with half our normal rainfall. Until 20 years ago, 100 degree days were very unusual. Any observant person can see what is happening with the climate. Um, and then he uh, gives an, a, a link. And then he says, I recently heard uh, you mentioned your podcast that you consider yourself a conservative. Conservative or liberal, we can all agree on the dangers of climate change. And then he risks another uh, um, uh, a link, and he says, appreciate your time. Thank you, Manuel. Well, Manuel, thank you for the email. And what I appreciate about Manuel's email is that um, he didn't see uh, me mentioning that I'm a conservative or, or anything else as being uh, some sort of barrier to communication. And I truly appreciate that. That's something that we don't have uh, enough of in our culture. Uh, it's something we, we might not even have necessarily in fly fishing. You know, We have these certain um, words and phrases and um, labels that are seen as barriers to communication, but they should really be the opposite. I mean, th th those are the kind of kind of people that we should have in conversations with. So I want to applaud Manuel for even thinking about reaching out and, and not assuming I'm, I was immediately going to shoot him down. So there's a lot I could say on this. I have mentioned climate change uh, a number of times in the podcast, and I will say that I have mentioned conservation quite a bit, that it's, it is probably not gotten the emphasis that it should on the podcast. Um, but some of that has to do with the fact that um, for all the things I feel like I know a little bit about, uh, conservation is, is kind of on, on the periphery of that. Uh, I, I, there's so many better resources than me out there. That's true about everything. But um, I, I have mentioned conservation quite a bit, and I have uh, addressed climate change here and there. Um, so I can confidently say that I haven't published anything directly focused on climate change. Um, the, the idea of conservation and creation stewardship that I have shared in Casting Across really does address kind of my perspective on this. And really what it comes down to is this. I don't deny that there's a change into the climate. I don't. I don't deny that. I think to to look at year to year, decade to decade, century to century, which only you know really goes back a few centuries because what we have for historical data is uh, very much... Um, deduced from other markers and, and things like ice and in tree rings. And I mean, I'm overgeneralizing, but uh, we, we have this information that only goes back so far. So we do see a change, Again, not denying that, not a capital D uh, climate change denier. At the same time, so I have that information that I see these things changing, but I'm very skeptical of the narrative when marquee climate change events like uh, the the COP28 that we had uh, that the end of last year, uh, it was conducted in the manner that we saw it unfold over the past week or uh, the, the week of that that it, that it went on for, which was, I mean, these are, I know people see these as like talking points, but one, people flying there in private jets. If it's that big of a deal, if the house is on fire, why are you coated in gasoline? Um, if, if it's as big of a deal as it is, why is the Pope flying there? Why are some of these dignitaries flying there? Why is Greta Thunberg flying there? Um, the, the, I, I can't reconcile those two ideas in my head. I'm not saying that that means that there's not an issue. 
I just, it's hard for me to take you seriously. It's like Gavin Newsom at a fancy restaurant during COVID or Chris Christie on the beach during COVID, Chris Christie on the beach period. But anyway, uh, you know, it's hard for me to take you seriously when you're doing something that is contradictory to the message that you're telling me. It's a rules for the, not for me kind of thing, right? So these are a lot of the things that I have in in my mind when, when I think about this issue. Um, additionally, you know, when we have things like um, the fact that I think for 2023 that wildfires uh, produced more carbon emissions than every country in the world except for China, um, you know, I, that doesn't mean, and I want to be very, very clear on this, this does not mean that I don't think we should have better environmental policies, that we should we should not be burning tires and producing engines without catalytic converters uh, coming off of them and uh, you know spraying aerosol cans in the air just for fun. I don't think that thing, that's wise. I also don't think it's good to dump oil in streams and to throw trash out of your car window and do any of those things that are not being responsible and not being in a mindset and a heart attitude that is about stewarding creation. And so uh, some, these are some of the things that, that I, I factor into this big kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, scattershot uh, um, thought process, which I'm having a really easy time articulating, as you can see. But then it goes as one step further in my mind. If we truly care about these things, and it, it truly is a, um, a, a crisis, we're at a crisis point, are you driving a car? Are you going fly fishing? Because um, if, if things are on the precipice of, of falling off the edge, then don't add to the stress for the fish. I take someone, it's hard for me to take someone seriously. And I'm not saying Manuel did this. I'm not saying anyone has done this. I'm certainly seeing people online that have, have done this. Um, but if, if it's that big of a deal, then stop buying plastic. Stop buying things that came to you on a diesel truck or a diesel train or on a boat from China. That is where, if, if this is as urgent as people are making it seem, this is the solution. And then go put out the wildfires. But now we have the problem of something that we've we've, we've thought about for um, for a, the last you know handful of, of decades, which is what does good forest management look like? It's allowing these fires to burn, but now they're throwing off carbon emissions. There's so many pieces to this, and I do feel that on both sides of the aisle, there's a reductionistic perspective that's taken. One is cut it all out, but it's really hard to do that. And the other is it's not a big deal, but um, but I think that's 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 wrong. I think just on its face, I think we have to have a much more balanced perspective on this, and we have to walk the talk. So if we say this is truly the end, then you got to stop fishing because everything that you're doing ultimately is one more um uh you know brick being pulled out of the the the, the dam allowing the the coming uh, deluge uh, so so you stepping into that river you touching one trout is going to stop this is going to contribute in some significant way uh down the line of there being a problem i don't think that's necessarily the issue i don't think that's necessarily the mindset that we need to have so um th this was certainly i mean manuel and i went back and forth so this is certainly not any sort of diatribe towards him this is just generally speaking a lot of my thoughts maybe i didn't really land on the conclusion you would say oh you rarely land on conclusions but yeah maybe maybe this isn't any conclusion i'm just sharing my thought process and why i don't feel like this podcast is necessarily the uh right form for me to work these things out so um, anyway, 
But Manuel, like I said before, thanks for having the uh, the desire to write the email. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Hopefully, what I just articulated is faithful to what you uh, kind of spurred me to to think about. And it's a conversation that inevitably is not going to be done. We're going to keep talking about this in some way, shape, or form. I'm going to keep talking about this in some way or shape or form because it's it's got to the point where it, you you can't be um, involved in some sort of outdoor activity without having this conversation. You can't be involved in politics without having some sort of conversation. And for me personally, again, as a pastor, I can't be involved in the world without having this conversation because this is something that has an ethical, moral component that people are concerned about and worried about. And so it's a conversation that I have to have, and I have it outside of the uh, confines of this podcast. But anyway, three great emails, uh, plenty more. And if you emailed me over the last few months since this last podcast, and I haven't addressed you in the podcast, I think I probably addressed it in personally just via email, and I always appreciate those interactions. Well, going long, okay? That's what happens when we start talking about things that are kind of off the script. But uh, what I wanted to mention for the next three podcasts, which I assume would be next three, excuse me, probably next three months, next nine podcasts. So that would be episodes uh, 281, no, 271 to 279, I suppose, um, are going to be uh, like Fly Fishing 101. And I can't call it that because that's what Orvis calls their their program. But some sort of intro to fly fishing, uh, some sort of newbie content. Now, before you say, well, I'm not going to listen to Matthew until this is all over, what I want to remind you of is one of the things I think is super beneficial for if you are an expert, and, I'm, and if you're an expert listening to my podcast, please let me know. Uh, but if, if you are a well-seasoned angler and you're listening to my content or anyone else's content, and it starts to go down a road of talking about things that are more um, directed towards beginners, there is an enormous benefit in helping you think about the way that you think about things, both personally, but also as you articulate these things to someone else. I think that there is an enormous benefit in hearing the introductory basic primer level content so that you can synthesize it both for your own personal use and saying, you know what, I was doing something that was maybe one degree off of what, what true north is. Uh, I was very successful, but maybe uh, e eking it over just a little bit could make things even better. Or if you are bringing up your child, bringing up your neighbor, working with your local chapter or whatever uh, to, to help people learn to fish, maybe I can give you some verbiage and some concepts that would be helpful as you do that. Because you might know the information, but knowing it and communicating it are oftentimes uh, two different things. And uh, so hopefully I can be helpful with that. So we're going to start off by talking about what what is fly fishing, you know, stuff you should know. What is fly fishing? That is the the very first thing we'll talk about. Then we'll move into gear selection. We'll move into finding fish, finding water, uh, go into a couple of different species, talk about trout, talk about uh, warm water. Uh, but it's I'm looking forward to it, and it's something that hopefully will be beneficial to you and also beneficial to a new audience, something that you can maybe pass on to somebody as they are getting into fly fishing. I think ultimately, if I help two or three people, and hopefully it's more than that, but if I help two or three people in, in getting started in fly fishing, then it'll make it all worth it. This week on the website, the first article was called The Fly Fishing Show, Kids Highlights. So I took my boys to the fly fishing show in Marlboro, Massachusetts this uh, last week. We had a really good time. The boys absolutely loved it. I took all four of them. And at this point in the year, they are two years apart. So it was a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, and an 11-year-old. They had a great time. They all bought stuff. They all got stickers. And so in this uh, article, I shared what each of their highlight was and what each of they, them, them bought. So um, that's what I talked about in this post. Then Wednesday's article. Oh, you know, I, I don't often have the best photography in my articles, but this one's pretty sweet. Now, it's me. Okay, but I'm not trying to be pompous, not to be arrogant or vain. It's a sweater I'm wearing. 
I got the sweaters a gift at the end of last year, and it is just phenomenal. So if you never get on the website, if you just listen to me as you're driving, uh, pull over to a safe place or once you get to your office, once you get home, pull up castingacross.com, go to the article that came out on January 10th, 2024, and look at this beautiful fly fishing sweater that I am now the owner of. So maybe I'm overselling it, but I do truly, uh, truly enjoy this sweater. So you'll have to check that out. This week's recommendation on the podcast is something that I am just excited to look at. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'd love to get my hands on it, and I anticipate I will in the coming months just to play with um, a little bit. But uh, it is the new spay equipment from Sage. So Sage, one of the Farbank brands, has come out with a new reel and a new rod, and they are absolutely premium, top-of-the-line Spay gear. It's the Spay R8 Rod Series and the Spay Reel Series. Um, they are brand new for this season, and they, again, like I said, high-end uh, in dollar, but uh, the culmination of a lot of research and time spent in on folks that are using this these techniques on their local rivers. So uh, Farbank uh, Sage in particular is up in the Pacific Northwest, and so this is Spay country. Now, Obviously, spay fishing has taken taken the fly fishing world by storm over the last decade, and for trout spay and for people doing it for carp, I'm sure. But this stuff is really neat to look at for for two reasons. Let me explain it real quick. I'm not saying you necessarily go out and spend two thousand bucks on on spay gear, right? But if you need to, then go for it and you know give the good people at Sage your business. But the two things that I think are cool to look at: one is they're trying to sell you equipment, but they're going to explain how they did it and why they did it. And if you're not a spay expert, then the way they walk through the components, the materials, the design process helps you understand a, a different aspect of the fly fishing world. So that's the first thing. Secondly, one of the things I like about, um, say, say, a group like Farbank, and there's other fly fishing organ, uh, companies and, and conglomerates that are like this. Conglomerate such a scary word, but you know what I mean. Where within one place, you can find all the component pieces to get everything you need. So with but between uh, Sage and Rio, uh, not even including Reddington and some other companies, what you have is all the pieces that you need to get everything that you, you need to get on the water. So whether you use that stuff or not, um, you, you at least know all the different pieces and how they kind of fit together. And so it's an incredibly interesting information they put out as they're, they're showing off the R8 and the Spay Reel. But it's also uh, um, just a helpful way to become acquainted with this style of fly fishing. So I'll put a link to the uh, um, the, the content for the R8 and the Spay Reel from Sage on the podcast's show notes over at castingcross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingcross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.